Hello, my name is Annalise. Tonight's reading is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Brothers and sisters, I want to call to your attention to the good news that I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. You are being saved through it if you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless somehow you believed it for nothing. I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day in line with the scriptures. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? So Jesus, we thank you for who you are. On this night when we think of the cross and we think of your sacrifice for us, we ask that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to see afresh the love of God, the love of God revealed, the love of God poured out. Open our hearts to receive again tonight this love that you have lavished on us. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Well, we're so glad that you're here on this special night. This is also the first time uh, that New Life Downtown has had our own Good Friday service downtown at Palmer High School. You know, we do all kinds of things that probably to the world seem weird, but this is probably the strangest one of them all. But I think this is our way of getting back at the high school because our first Sunday back here at the end of October, there was like a Dracula set on the stage. And so it's our turn to talk about something gory tonight. (laughs) Death is always a tragedy. Death is always a tragedy even when we try to dress it up with nice words. Even when we try to put a positive spin on it, Some of you in the last year or two have encountered that. You've encountered the pain of losing a loved one or a friend. Maybe even when you see the news and you see what's happening in Ukraine, it's very difficult to sort of put a nice spin on the loss of life. We do this sometimes, and as part of my occupation as a pastor, I hear things that people say at funerals, and we try to find ways to smile about death. But death is always a tragedy, even when we try to ignore it. Death is always a reminder that this is not the way God intended the world to be. Sometimes, sometimes death can spark something good. Sometimes death can be the beginning of a revolution. 300 years ago or so, that's certainly what the French believed when they led King Louis XVI to the guillotine. Sometimes death can lead to the change that we seek. We're reminded maybe even a couple years ago, the death of George Floyd, where it provoked an uprising and an outcry to say, can you look at this injustice again? But for all that death can sometimes lead to, there's never been a movement that launched in honor of a victim that uses the instrument of their death as their primary symbol. Even when a death leads to a movement or to a revolution, 
There are not those moments where people say, let's take the very thing that killed this person and let's make it our symbol. It certainly had never happened before Jesus. And when we come to this moment that we call Good Friday and this scene that we'd rather gloss over where the Son of God is tortured and killed, we'd like to sort of say, well, let's just say it. He, he died. He was crucified. That's great. Do we have to say much more? But we remember that the Romans were masters at torture. They had perfected the art of torture and crucifixions were used to suppress uprisings and to maintain an imposed order. Crucifixions were the tool of an empire to strike fear into the heart of the oppressed. Crucifixion was how slaves were killed. Crucifixion was how rebels were killed. If you wonder tonight if Jesus puts himself on the side of the powerful or of the oppressed, Good Friday answers it once and for all. And the Son of God dies a death so excruciating, so painful, so shameful that actually even Roman citizens did not allow themselves to talk about it. Oh, they allowed themselves to design it and to implement it. But if a good Roman citizen happened to, out of the corner of their eye, glimpse a corpse upon a cross, they felt defiled. You couldn't bring it up at dinner. You couldn't say, did you see what I saw outside the city today? The victim of a crucifixion was an outcast. No social capital, nothing to summon up sympathy. In fact, if you died on a cross, the overwhelming odds were no one would say your name again. Except for Jesus of Nazareth. Here we are, 2,000 years later, from North Africa to East Asia to South America to Europe and, yes, even America. For 2,000 years, people have not only celebrated this death, but proudly identified themselves with his cross. Not just his death. But the cross itself, never in history has there been such a reversal, a reclaiming of a use of symbols. What once was used to strike fear into the heart of the powerless now becomes the symbol of hope and love and forgiveness for all who are weary, all who are broken, all who are covered in shame. The secular historian Tom Holland says this, the notion that a God might have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. And as a British citizen himself, he says, familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of God's who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. This line from a secular historian is what I want you to hold in your head and in your heart tonight. Because somewhere in our consciousness, 
from growing up around a Christianish neighborhood or world or culture. You have this vague notion in your mind that Good Friday is when God inflicted punishments. God, seething with anger, took it out on someone else. And our question tonight is a very simple one. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? Why are we here tonight marking ourselves by his cross, calling ourselves by his name? Why in the world is such a shameful and horrifying death actually good news for the world? You heard read tonight one of the earliest documents. 1 Corinthians 15 is not just a book in the Bible. Before it was that, it was a letter from a church planter from a few decades after the time of Christ. And in fact, we have more copies of this letter than we do of other ancient documents, documents about Roman history, documents from the Greeks, documents of Greek mythology, yet no one says, did Homer write the Odyssey? But we have stacks more copies of this, these letters than we do of those ancient documents. And so if you would... Take seriously for a moment that one of the followers of Jesus who began to launch communities in the region, a man named Paul, wrote these words. Brothers and sisters, I want to call your attention to the good news that I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. You are being saved through it if you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless you somehow believed it for nothing. I passed on to you as the most important what I also received. Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. One of the earliest documents we have, a few decades after the time of Christ's death, Paul says, look, I'm just going to say to you what I received. Christ died for our sins. It's as simple as that. When we ask ourselves, why did Jesus die? We say, well, he died for our sins. But I want us tonight to look a little more closely at that. And to do that, we're going to have to unpack this word sin, because it's not a word we use every day. It's not a word that is fashionable to say. We'd like to attribute the causes of our actions to other reasons, our upbringing, our economic situation, our lack of education, our this and that, and surely all those dynamics are part of how sin works its infection in the world. But what is this thing we call sin. One of the other letters that Paul wrote is a letter to the church in Rome, and he says this in Romans 8, God has done what was impossible for the law since it was weak because of selfishness. God condemned sin in the body of Christ Jesus by sending his own son to deal with sin in the same body as humans who are controlled by sin. Now, in Paul's letters, he didn't have the the, the, the tools to write in capitals or non-capitals, but if we were translating this, we might translate the use of the word sin here with a capital S. Over and over again in Paul's letter to the Romans, he's talking about sin not simply as bad things we do, but as a power that we were under. Sin is a power we were under. Sin is a dark and sinister force that is behind every form of wickedness, every structure that it gets enshrined in, all the principalities and powers that lie behind evil in the world. Sin is a power that we were under. We have to take this seriously because 
The eyewitnesses to Jesus' life tell us that Jesus died at Passover. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us. We're like, what's Passover? Maybe if you grew up in a Jewish home or you were around some of that, you're like, I think I know a little bit about Passover. Isn't Passover the story of Egypt? Exactly right. Passover is that feast to remember the night that God rescued his people out of Egypt. But what happens at Passover is that God deals with evil. He brings judgment upon the ruler of Egypt, and he brings deliverance to his people. He deals with the powers, and he delivers his people. Deals with the powers and delivers his people. Now, if you've ever wondered why sometimes our society or even our own lives gets trapped in these spirals that we can't seem to escape. Why is it for all of our learning? Why is it for all of our technology? Why is it for all of these things we keep falling back in the same habits? And as much as we make advancements, they really just become new ways of doing the same old wrong to each other. That's because sin is a power that we were under. There's a New Testament professor, John Barclay, who puts it this way. He says, sin conquers even the best human intentions and frustrates even the best possible law. But if you're a parent in this room, you didn't need John Barclay to tell you that. You're like, I come up with so many rules and it doesn't work. Because sin is a power that we're under. But if we're really honest, we don't even need to look at the children we parent. We just need to look at our, your, how is your Lenten fast? Did you try to fast anything for Lent? I'm just curious. I did. I um, very boldly gave up dessert for Lent. And it was going really well until one day I came back from the grocery store with these Nutella cookies. I'd never seen them before in King Super. It was like the Lord provided it right there. I was just, just there it is. Nutella, but already in two cookies, like an Oreo, but with Nutella. I mean, people. And so I came home with this box of cookies, and Holly says, what are you doing? I said, I just come back from England, honey. These are my tea biscuits. She said, that's dessert. I said, it's not dessert, dear. In England, we have tea every day, and they're biscuits with your tea. These are my tea biscuits. She says, that's dessert. Sin has this way of conquering our best human intentions, frustrating even the best law. But Galatians, another letter that Paul wrote, he says, grace and peace to you from God the Father, of the, Lord, uh, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's talking about Jesus. He says he gave himself for our sins so that he could deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God, our Father. Friends, maybe you're here tonight and it's funny to laugh about tea biscuits and Nutella cookies, but there are more serious things that we find ourselves caught in repeatedly, repeatedly, and repeatedly. And listen, I believe that we can get help in a variety of ways, but unless we allow Jesus to deal with the power that has us under its grasp, we will never be free. And you better believe, I believe, in counseling and in retraining our brain and in accountability and community and all of that. But the power to free you from the bondage of sin comes from Jesus alone. And so the first thing we have to say tonight is that Jesus died to free us from sin. Jesus died to free us from sin. Why did he die? 
It's not enough to say Christ died for our sins. Let's unpack that. Number one, he died to free us from sin. Secondly, as we go back to Romans, that letter that Paul wrote, Romans 3.23, Paul says, very matter-of-factly, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Now we recognize that Paul's not just talking about sin with a capital S, like a power that we're under. He's also talking about you and me. It's not just a power, it's our own participation. Good Friday doesn't allow us Good Friday doesn't allow us to only name ourselves as the victim. We, I'm under the power of sin. It's not my fault. The devil made me do it. Good Friday forces us to confess that I am not only the victim, I am the violator. I am the violator. I have participated in this. I have contributed to this. So sin is not just a power we were under. Sin is a failure to be human. It's a failure to be human. Now, I know this is not how we use the word human, is it? What happens when you mess up or you lose your cool? You're like, I'm so sorry. I'm only human. But actually, the story the Bible tells is to be human is to be made in the image of God. To be human is to reflect God's wisdom and love and order into the world. And so when we fall short of that, when we do violence against one another, when we break our commitments, when we shed shade the truth a little bit into lies, when we do that, we're not being human, we're being less than human. Lord of the Rings fans will recognize this is what Tolkien was trying to do with his creature Gollum. That sin makes us a shell of what we once were. And we sit there with our Nutella biscuits going, my precious. <laughs> Maybe it's helpful to think of our calling to be human as a calling to be like an angled mirror that reflects God down into the world. But what sin does is sin mars the mirror or sin, if you'd like, cracks the mirror. And so we can't say it's just the power we were under. It's also our own cracking of the mirror. In the time of Jesus' life, the people of Israel understood that. They didn't just have the narrative of Passover and the Exodus. They also had another great story. If you're vaguely familiar with the Bible, the two great Jewish stories, the story of an Exodus with Moses and the story of an exile. But the difference between exile and exodus is exodus was a great story because you'd be like, we're just the slaves save us exile was a problem because they were once again under a foreign rule but exile was it's your fault and all the prophets in the old testament reminded them you're going to babylon in case you forget you're going to babylon because you worshiped other gods we like the part of the cross that says, I was a slave that needed to be set free. We like the Exodus narrative. That's a nice one. But the Bible makes us also deal with the exile narrative. In what ways, this is a squirmy question, in what ways are you in the situation you're in because of choices you make? I don't want to admit that. I don't want to say, well, actually I have contributed to this. Good Friday makes us confront the ways in which we have failed in our own vocation, our own calling to be human. But you know what's beautiful about Jesus? 
is as soon as Jesus starts his earthly ministry, he starts forgiving sins. I mean, it's like, he, dude can't help himself. They're like, can you just stick with the, like, like feeding us, like bread and fish, that's good. But you start forgiving sins, like, we don't really know what's going on here. C.S. Lewis points out how absurd it is that Jesus was announcing forgiveness. We, again, sometimes take off your Christian goggles for a second and let these stories shock you. If you're here tonight and you're like, I don't have Christian goggles, perfect. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, we can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes, I forgive you. You steal my money, I forgive you. But what should we make of a man who himself was not robbed or untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on another man's toes and stealing another man's money? I mean, what if someone cuts you off Oh, someone cuts another person off on the road and you just happen to see it and you roll your w- window down and you go, I forgive you, bro. <laughs> You're like, woohoo. What, who is this guy? But this is what Jesus is doing. Zacchaeus is cheating other people out of their money and Jesus is like, I forgive you, Zacchaeus. These people are like, was it your money? <laughs> like, I didn't see him stealing from you. You see how bizarre this is? And Lewis goes on, he says, yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had doubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned. The person chiefly offended in all offenses, this makes sense only if, only if, He really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. It doesn't make sense to say Jesus was a nice guy who was very forgiving. Forgiving of whom? Of everyone, actually. Of people who didn't sin against him directly. Right. Actually, come to think of it, this is really bizarre, unless, in fact, he's God. The reason I'm belaboring this point is because you and I, we think of forgiveness and we think, oh, that must mean that there's a fussy God in the sky somewhere that's super uptight because you broke his rules. In the pagan world, there was no notion of a pagan God forgiving you. There was only sort of an uninvolved God. And if lightning happened to strike over there and you were over here, you didn't say, thanks for forgiving me. You said, phew. What Jesus is introducing into the world is the sense that there is a God who cares about you. There is a God who takes your choices personally. There is a God who is so bound up with you that when you choose to love your neighbor, he either is happy or sad, depending on the choices you make. There's a God who's invested in you. There's a God who's moved by you. There's a God who chooses to forgive you. So Jesus spends all of his earthly ministry forgiving people, and of course, he goes to the cross to do exactly that. One of Paul's other letters, Ephesians, he says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, look at this word, that he lavished on us. Now this is the first hint I'm going to give you tonight, and we're going to come to this in a a moment just a bit more. 
But it says it's Jesus' blood, but the riches of God's grace, which means this is not about an angry God and a selfless Jesus, but a loving God who's always been looking to lavish grace on you. Why did Jesus die? Number two, Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. Some of you are living with the weight of the, either the cumulative impact of the mistakes you've made or the choices you've made, or the very sudden impact of one lapse of judgment. And I'm here to say to you tonight, the only person who can remove the weight of that shame from you is Jesus. The only person who can remove this weight. I know it's very popular in our day to self-talk our way through this, to look yourself in the mirror and say, I am worthy, and to say, I am enough. I know it's popular to try to get at the goal of a positive self-image through positive self-talk. Can I say to you that nobody has a greater vested interest in you having a positive appraisal of yourself than the one who made you? It's just that the way he's going to get you there is not by trying to do mind over matter and fool yourself into saying you're worthy. It's to confess your unworthiness so that he can forgive you. He can take the weight of shame off of you. He can take the weight of your unworthiness off of you. Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. But the truth is both of these things, freedom and forgiveness, come for God so loved. They're offered to us because God so loved. John 3.16, we all know it. We've seen it at a football game. It's so simple and yet we forget it. God was so mad at the world until Jesus came. God was seething with wrath until Jesus came. What does it say, friends? God so loved the world. That he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. Romans 5, Paul's letter again. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love through Christ giving his life. We could use some complicated theology here. The theologians over church history say the Trinity can't be divided. The operations of the first person and the second person, we don't split them up. We don't imagine the father saying, hmm, and the son saying, please. We imagine the father saying, come on, and the son saying, yes. God so loved the world that he gave. God shows his love for us. And so the third and final thing we're going to say tonight is that Jesus died to show us God's love for us. Not only to free us, not only to forgive us, but to show us God's love. Do you know that Jesus came because God had already decided to forgive you? Nowhere in the New Testament does it describe God as being 
in a state of anger. In fact, when the New Testament uses the word wrath, it's its way of talking about God's opposition to everything that is ruining his world, including you. The wrath of God is a way of speaking of God's opposition toward evil, toward sin, towards all that's destroying his good world. But in his love, he saves us from that. Not in his love, he balances out his wrath. Some of you heard that growing up. Well, God's loving, but he's also angry, so you better be careful. Catch him on a bad day, and who knows what will happen to you. Go straight to hell. That's how some of you grew up. As if he's Santa Claus trying to see if you've been naughty or nice. But the cross settles it once and for all. It should show us that God has already made up his mind about you. That God has already made up his mind to love you. To die for you. To stand in solidarity with your suffering. The psalmist said God is close to the brokenhearted, but at the cross, God actually became the brokenhearted. You see, friends, the cross didn't change God's mind about us. It changes our mind about God. It didn't change God's mind about us. But it has the power, if you let it tonight, change your mind about God. It has the power to show you that God has always loved you, God has always wanted to rescue you and free you. God has always wanted to forgive you. God has always wanted to make you part of his family. Some years ago, a friend of mine bought me a ticket to go with him to the funeral of Eugene Peterson. You may know Eugene Peterson as the person who translated the message paraphrase and wrote many wonderful books about pastoral ministry. And in 2010, I had the privilege of going with this friend of mine to his home and spending a few days with Eugene and Jan. And so when he passed, I wasn't sure if I was going to go to the funeral or not, but my friend said, come on, you got to go. I've got your ticket. It's a good friend. And we showed up to this funeral and, and different people shared a few things. And one of his sons spoke that day. And his son, Leif, said at his father's funeral, he said, you know, my dad had everyone fooled for 29 years. And we thought, oh no, is this going to be one of those moments in a funeral? And he said, my dad had everyone fooled because for 29 years of pastoral ministry, he only had one sermon. <laughs> We're like, uh-oh. He said, you know, my dad wrote many books, but he really only had one message. His son went on to say, it was a message that my dad whispered in my heart for over 50 years. He said these were words that my dad would sometimes sneak into my room late at night just to whisper over me as I slept. He said it's, it, everyone thinks he had all these wonderful things to say. He really only had one sermon, one message. And he said it was this. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. And he is relentless. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. And he is relentless. If the worship team would come tonight, I want you to hear that over your own heart. 
that in this moment on this Good Friday, with all the things that could be said, the cross above everything else shows us a God who died to free us, a God who died to forgive us, and Jesus who died to show us this love of God. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. Then maybe tonight, you, it's been a while, watching online or here in the room, and you're like, I don't know, I used to kind of think that. I used to sort of believe this stuff, and I'm here because a grandparent asked me to be here to watch this thing. I, yeah. God loves you. God is on your side. He's coming after you. And he is relentless. A God who would go all the way to the cross to show this love for you. Would you stand with me tonight? I want us just to sing that chorus that we sang earlier above all. And if you would, if you're open to this, if you just kind of open up your hands. And I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit, Paul said the Holy Spirit spreads God's love into our hearts. I'm going to pray for that. It's not always an emotion, but sometimes it is. And emotions are great. It's part of how God made you. Maybe tonight it's time to weep. To say, God, forgive me. I've been holding this thing, trying to carry the weight. I'm just going to let it out and say, I'm sorry. Maybe tonight it's time to exhale a sigh of relief to say, God, I want to be free from this pattern of sin. I don't want to be under the power of it anymore. So I'm praying the Holy Spirit would spread the love of God into your hearts and unlock. Some of you actually need to unlock some tears, need to unlock the softness in your heart again. And maybe you've been following Jesus for years and years and years, but this has just sort of become academic to you. And you're listening to this and you're critiquing my atonement theology. <laughs> Listen, the Holy Spirit wants to reveal the depth of the love of God for you tonight. So sing this with us.